If you enjoy the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. This has fascinated me. Um, obviously, you flew the F. You went on to the F eighteen uh, Charlie, the Legacy Hornet. How did that happen from an E two pilot to going to a Hornet? Like, can you tell us about that transition? Yeah. So, um, much like I referred to before about how the Navy manned their selection process in flight school poorly, uh, <laughs> there were times when the um, when they were short at certain rank levels in different communities. Cause again, they didn't manage it from the start. Uh, so one day, you know, and at the time I had gotten all my qualifications it was my last deployment, uh, in the E2, I'd gotten all my qualifications as an, as a E2 pilot that I could possibly get. I had all my qualifications as an LSO that I could possibly get. I had got my master's degree on the side just oh, wow. because I wanted, I, I wanted, Everything on my resume, not that we really called it that, to you know give me the best shot. But I didn't know if I was ever going to get the shot. And one day I was walking out. It was my, my wave day as an LSO. And I'm walking out to go catch some aircraft. And our CAG, the guy who's in charge of the whole air group, uh, Navy captain, is walking the other way. Uh, fantastic leader. Probably one of the best, if not the best, people I worked for in my time. And I knew him because I was an LSO. So I would grade his yes, passive. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. To, to kind of give a picture of who this individual was, um, I mean, he was like six foot four. He had a beautiful mustache. He would smoke wherever <laughs> he wanted to on the ship because he was Navy captain and he did not care. Um, and prior to us, he, had, he was the skipper of a Hornet squadron. But in between that and coming to us, he was actually the skipper of Top Gun, like the school. I mean, wow. he was, this guy was, I, I refer to him as like a fighter pilot's fighter pilot. From that that stereotype back in the day. And, and, uh, we're walking, we're about to pass each other. He's like, Hey, Wombat, I got a question for you. And I was like, yeah, what's up, sir. And he's like, hey, have you ever thought about flying fighters? And I looked at him without even zero filter in what I thought. And I was like, well, sir, once you've flown the E2, there's, I mean, that's the pinnacle. And he looked at me, he didn't miss a beat. He's like, okay, cool. And he turns to walk. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was like, what? I was kidding. And he was like, oh, okay. He's like, well, come talk to me later. And what the Navy had done is every year they do two boards for transitions right. just systematically, but they don't necessarily pick people up because okay. it's needs of the Navy. Well, they had a huge need for basically lieutenants, O3s. Um, so they did, they were like, we're going to do one board and we're going to pick up 20 people from different communities. Mm -hmm. And, and he had heard about it. He thought that I'd be a good fit. Um, so he encouraged me to apply. He said he would recommend me. Um, the skipper of the ship, who also was a, a former Tomcat fighter pilot, recommended me. And it, and it just worked out that, you know, one day I had gone on, because uh, these boards take a while, I had gone on to my short tour as an instructor um, down in Kingsville flying the T-45. And I'll never forget it. It was a Friday afternoon, getting ready to walk on a, on a training flight. And they had civilian um, 
people that worked in the squadron, you know, in the administrative roles mm-hmm. and things like that. And this woman who was super nice walks up to me and she kind of squints and looks at my name tag. She's like, I have something on my desk for you. And I'm like, what, what is it? And she's like, well, it's on there. It's a big manila envelope. And I'm like, okay. So yeah, I told my student, we had already briefed. We were literally walking down. I was like, give me a second. So I ran down there, I opened it and it was my, basically my orders to go transition to F-18s. Wow. Um, and I walked back to the student and He's like, sir, is everything okay? I was like, dude, as long as you don't kill me today, like you're passing this flight. <laughs> like, I don't care. Let's go have a good time. And I was on cloud nine uh, because I it was my dream shot, you know. Yeah. And and um, so that's how it all went down. And uh, that weekend was a blur <laughs> with a lot I can of fun. imagine. Uh, but it was yeah, it was it was a pretty cool feeling to to get one of those spots. So. Yeah, and what is it common from like you know the E two C two types to go on to fighters? Not in the Navy. Um, so a lot of my Air Force buddies have done transitions and things among communities, and uh, but the Navy it's it's really rare. And I'm not okay. saying that from an egotistical standpoint because God knows no pilot needs to be more egotistical. <laughs> but um, it was it was just rare because they had invested so much money into you on that platform. Yeah. To then put even more money into you on something else is is it really just doesn't make sense to be honest yes. with you. Um, but again, needs of the Navy is needs of the Navy and it, and it worked out. And I think I, I know personally maybe three people, including myself that have done it in my 20 year career. So wow, is that uh, not, wow. not counting people that like, say they flew a platform that went away. Right. Like, right. So yeah. when like, when the Tomcat went away, obviously guys transitioned when the S threes went away, people transitioned, but, for people that took a platform that's still actively flying and just left it, it's it's pretty rare. So, and how did you find the transition? Obviously, going from like the E two into like kind of the, the fighter world, did they? Uh, did you find they were like nice to you? Like, uh, like how was that for you? Like personally, it was weird. Um, going through the training was great because timeline wise, a lot of the instructors were my buddies from flight school, so ah, that was yes, really cool. Um, when I got to my first squadron, I found it was an extreme one way or another. Um, I would have people, and the majority of the people were great. My my skipper, my exos, they were all great. Um, they they really embraced, and they they knew my strengths. You know, they knew, hey, I'm a new guy, and I don't know things tactically, and I can yes. kind of fly the plane but I do have combat experience. I have the bigger picture. I was a division officer. I had done scheduling. I've done all this so they could use those aspects. Cause again, in the Navy, the flying is just one aspect of the officer job. Um, there was a couple that weren't. And one in particular literally sat me down who was higher ranking than me and told me flat out. He did not like transition guys. Um, and he said that I took a spot away from somebody that deserved it. And all this stuff. And he he was we we butt heads the whole time in that squadron. And I don't know what it was. I don't know what I did. Um, but and, we just and how, how did you point. like? Yeah. Just how did you handle that when he said that to you? Did you just say it? OK. Or did you? Yeah, it well, it was really interesting because I just I, I was kind of shocked by it, to be honest yeah. with you, that, that somebody would would start, you know, in 10 seconds, he introduced himself. And then now he's saying this and it's like. That's really bizarre, you know. So I knew a couple of the guys, a couple of the junior officers in the squadron, and I kind of talked with them in confidence, and they all kind of were like, "Yeah, that's who he is," you know. So it was his personality. It's just that's how he took it out on me. Um, 
it, with a guy like that or a girl like that, I just did my job. You know, that's all you can do is, is do your job. Um, from childhood, my father taught me the difference between right and wrong. And oh. I did that. You know, I did the right thing. And if he disagreed with it, like I remember vividly uh, a conversation that happened in our ready room one day. We're sitting in Lemoore and the fog had rolled in. So nobody's flying. You can't even see the jets on the flight line. That's how <laughs> thick the fog gets there. And uh, my buddy is on duty officer and I'm having some lunch and we're just talking. We had had some maintenance issues with our jets because they were getting old. I mean, they mm -hmm. just they were. Um, so we were kind of having this little game of like, well, would you take a jet if this was broken or would you take a jet if this was broken? You know, just because there's nothing else to do. Yeah. And this guy who happened to be the division or the maintenance officer at the time was his side job who didn't like me. He's sitting in the corner eating lunch and, and my buddy goes, well, how about this one? He goes, you walk out to the jet and the ejection seat is is armed. It's not safe. He goes, do you take the jet? And I go, where are we? And he goes, what do you mean? I go, are we here in Lemoore and it's a training flight or are we on the ship and it's a combat flight? Mm. And he goes, both. And I go, on the ship in combat, I arm or I safe the seat up. I talk to the plane captain. I do a good pre-flight and I go because there's a mission and there's a job that needs to be done and there's guys and girls on the ground that we have to support. I go, Lamore, I don't take it. And he mm. goes, why is the difference? And I go, because I don't know what else they missed, right? Mm. I, I have no idea. I mean, so when you think about our procedures at the time, the previous pilot is supposed to safe that up when he taxis in. So mm. that's one person that missed it. The plane captain that caught the plane is supposed to check that. That's two. The plane captain that's launching the plane was supposed to catch it. So that's yeah. three. What else didn't they all catch? So, yeah. and, and again, because we were having some of these maintenance issues, I was like, that would be a good teaching point. And if it ruined a sortie, well, maybe we can fix some things. Well, he heard that and went through the roof. He's like, you can't deny a blah, blah, blah. And we just, at that point, I had been around for a while. And I told him, I was like, I'm the aircraft commander. I go, whether you like it or not, I could walk out to an aircraft and just say, no. <laughs> Period. I mean, oh, yeah. that was what yeah. the, the Navy employed in us is that we had that power to look at a jet and go, nope, not take yeah. it. And and that's the ultimate, you know, level of trust. And, and he didn't like my answer, but there's nothing he could have done about it. So it was just an interesting, different dynamic. And you get that any place you have a lot of type A personalities. You know, do I think in hindsight he had anything against me? I don't know. Maybe he did. I have no idea. But if he did, I feel bad for him more so, <laughs> to be honest with you, because that's a hard way to go through life. So It sounds like almost like uh, if you watch, I'm, I'm guessing you have, the new Top Gun movie like Hangman, a uh, bit of arrogance there, you know, a kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, <laughs> but like misguided arrogance. Yeah, misguided like, for no arrogance. Reason. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's just like, why are you being that way? Like, yeah. it'd be so much easier if we just worked together. You know, I don't, but... Be a team, yeah, totally. I, but I'm going to have to ask you this one, Bat. Your first reheat takeoff or afterburner takeoff in the Hornet. What was that like, getting that kick? It's it's pretty awesome. And mm. um, it, I never thought you'd feel it, you know, especially at the field. Because I had done, like, incentive rides at the ship and yeah. in, in a Super Hornet and things like that. And obviously a catapult's a catapult. I mean, it's the mm. coolest roller coaster ride in the world. Close. But I never thought at the field going down the runway that when you plug the blowers, you would actually feel it. And you do. I mean, it is a, it is a kick in the pants. And, and the story that I tell on that is, uh, you know, we had to, and I'm sure pilots everywhere have to, we had to, during training, we had to keep current, right? Yes. So you had to fly every so many days. And 
we had a rough stretch of weather and I wasn't on the schedule and it was like eight o'clock in the morning. I'm at my condo on the beach, you know, living the single life, you know, I'm a fighter <laughs> pilot. Yeah. And I get a call from the squadron and they're like, Hey, you're going to fall out of currency. Could you just come in and, and just, just go up and do what we would call a one V zero, just go up by yourself and just, just fly the plane around. You're not okay. doing a mission. You're just, you're just staying current. And in my head, I'm thinking like, so you want me to hop in my car, drive to base, take, a perfectly fine jet out over the ocean, bend the crap out of it and have fun and come back and land. What a pain. And yeah. And I'm like, yeah, no, I could do that. I could do, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I think I said yes as I was driving away in my car. <laughs> so I get to the squadron and, you know, man up the jet, the jet breaks. You know? oh. And so I call, you know, I talk to maintenance. I'm like, do you have any spares? And he's like, sir, we only have one spare, but I don't know if they're going to let you take it. And I'm like, well, why not? He's like, it's the air, air show plane. And I'm like, okay. So I called the, the duty desk on the radio. I'm like, Hey guys, you know, my, my jets broke. They have a spare, but it's the air show plane. You know, can I take that? And my buddy from flight school, who's now an instructor is sitting on duty. And he's like, he's like, let me check. And they come back and they're like, look, you could take it. He's like, but dude, be careful. And I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, I'm like, come on, man, I'm a pilot. Like I have three <laughs> combat tours. Like I'm not some nugget just out of flight school. Like give me yeah. a little bit of respect, right? Yes. What I come to find out is the air show plane is the big motor Charlie. So it's single seat Charlie with the bigger motors, so more thrust, and it wow. is completely slicked off. There's no center line tank. There's no nothing on the wings, nothing on the wingtips, no pylons on the wings. I mean, it was the slickest you could make an F-18 Charlie. And I remember taxiing this thing out. It felt light taxiing. Just oh, really? You could tell the difference. Out. It was weird. And I taxi onto the runway. And if you look at where Virginia Beach is and Oceania is compared to the coastline, it is right there. And I plug the blowers and go. And I turn out over the ocean just on our normal course rules. And I almost broke Mach 1 before I hit the hotel line. No way. That's how fast it was. And I literally, thank God, because I probably wouldn't be talking here with any semblance of my career, <laughs> saw the number. It hit 0.98 Mach in the HUD. And I pulled the power back to idle, threw the speed brakes out, reefed back on the stick just to keep myself from blowing. Because I was pointed wow. at all the hotels at their level as I'm going out. And I was like, wow. I flew. It's funny, I have a picture of the logbook. I flew for 32 minutes, and I was out of gas. That's all I had. Uh, it was December. I remember that. It was super cold out. I walked back. I was dripping in sweat because of how much fun I had. I mean, you could pull seven and a half Gs and just hold it in that plane because there was, yeah, I mean, it had so much power, the thrust. It was so much fun. And um, But, yeah, you absolutely felt the power, 100%. And you mentioned the 7.5 there. Is that actually the limit? Or could you, as a pilot, was there a switch? You were like, okay, I'm going to kick this switch off. I can do 9G. So um, there's, a, there's a, a paddle in the Hornet. And it's on the stick a little bit lower down. Um, and you can actually override it. And okay. it'll give you whatever the airframe will give you at that point, I guess. Um, I never pulled the paddle. I never had a need to pull the paddle. We never really trained um, to pull the paddle in my fleet squadron, I had one opportunity that I should have pulled the paddle. Um, <laughs> we were doing training and um, I came very close to a midair uh, between myself and my skipper as we were mm -hmm. doing kind of kind of this, it's a long, not to get into the, the tactics, but I pushed over to miss the midair as he went over the top of me and 
I guess the adrenaline dump of like, oh my God, I almost hit him. And then I realized like, oh crap, here's the desert. And I just, both hands on the stick, pulled back um, for everything that plane would give me. Yeah. Never pulled the paddle, which would have made sense. Uh, my rat out went below 100 feet um, in the HUD. And and I brought it back and we debriefed it. You know, in Navy fashion, you make mistakes. And, and I was at fault as much as he was at fault, as much as some of the systems of the jet were at fault. Um, and we fessed up to it and that's, you learn from it. Mm-hmm. But after we're done doing all that, our training officer's looking at the tape and he goes, dude, why don't you pull the paddle? <laughs> and I was like, I thought about it. And that's the thing, like in that extremis, in that time compression, I literally thought about doing it. And he goes, why didn't you do it? And I was like, I didn't want to get in trouble. And he's like, so you would have rather flown into the ground. And I was like, <laughs> why well, wouldn't I gotten in trouble? Like literally that's how my brain was wired. Wow. I was like, rather die than get in trouble. And I mean, so which is stupid. It's completely ridiculous. But um, but yeah, it was the one time I probably should have pulled it and I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, you know, the, you know, for the most part, the, the Hornet's a really smart plane, the Super Hornet even more so, um, to where it knows based on your loadout and stuff, how much you can actually pull. Mm-hmm. So you just, you just use the systems. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But obviously you kind of mentioned a few things there, but what would you say the strengths and weaknesses of the, uh, legacy model are on the Hornet? So one, it's a legacy. I mean, that's its biggest strength, right? It's seen combat. It's, it's done things. It's, um, I'm not saying the super Hornet isn't a good plane. Uh, I have been quoted as saying there's nothing super about a super Hornet, but <laughs> I've heard that uh, before. it's, it's a fine aircraft. Um, they had to do some things to it, uh, as far as the weapon loadouts that it could hold that really made it less capable unless you were using those weapons which we typically didn't um it's funny you know they they would joke that charlie guys legacy guys were always worried about their fuel Mm -hmm. but in reality that the charlie was a very fuel efficient airplane and a lot of times when we we would go on mixed sections where i'm being led by a super hornet you know whether it's an echo or foxtrot or where i'm leading one of them and it almost seemed like they always had to get gas before i did it's like what are we doing? You know, so I don't know if we were just taught how to be better with fuel management, possibly. Um, but it was a very slick airplane, um, which was super fun to fly, even even with configurations. Um, you know, there were instances where I had three drop tanks on it for training and I could still go through Mach 1. Wow. I mean, it was just really? insane. Uh, yeah, we did one. We're doing carrier quals as part of our workups off San Diego. My jet broke. I needed to get two traps during the day so I could go that night. I switch into a spare. Maintenance is like, it's a it's a three wet. And I'm mm. like, a three wet? We never fly three wets. And he's like, well, sir, it's set up for that from because they had just flown it from the beach. So they would load up all the drop tanks they yeah. were taking. And I was like, but it's empty, right? He's like, no. And I'm like, <laughs> so I've got like 6,000 pounds of extra gas plus internal and as soon as I get the engines online, the air boss is screaming at me like, turn down, went off the catapult, come right around. Because it was getting really close to sunset. And I was like, sir, I have to go dump gas. Like, I've got to get rid of this gas. So he's like, make it quick. So, you know, full blower, take off. I kept nice. it in blower at 500 feet. And a couple miles up ahead of the ship, I went through Mach 1. And it shocked me that the plane could do it. So um, it was really cool and capable in that. I Coming from the Hawkeye, I had a true appreciation for a plane that had systems that were designed to help the pilot because the E2 really didn't. Um, so like the autopilots and, and just the different modes of things were amazing, yeah. but they had to 
because the mission was such that you didn't have time to focus on that. You know, if you're in combat and you're going to drop a JDAM, you had like a 12 to 15 page checklist you had to go through to set all the systems up. You know, the last thing you need to be thinking about is flying the plane at that point. Yes. You know, you're really managing it. Um, so I really enjoyed that about the plane. Uh, like I said, they were getting a little bit uh, old when I started flying them. So um, originally designed as a 6,000 hour fighter. Some of ours were already on their 10,000 hour waivers. Crikey. Uh, so, I mean, you're doubling the lifetime of yeah, that plane. Yeah. You know, obviously they would go do long-term maintenance and redo things on it, but I mean, they were just getting beat up. Um, more so the, the compound, I don't want to say emergencies, but compound malfunctions. You know, I had, I had one off the catapult at night. I hit the end of the catapult and I lose everything like wow. dark, nothing. And I have no idea whether I've just lost both motors or if it's just electrical, um, but because the Hornet is such a great plane, you just plug the blower and put the stick back and you can climb. And I literally climbed straight up until I could see the horizon and leveled off and started troubleshooting things and getting things back and, mm. and came back aboard. So just, you know, it was just they were they were worn out because they had been flown so much, but they were such a capable plane. Um, I'd say the biggest negative from at least the U.S. Navy and how we came in our history is the Hornet represented the first aircraft that was a multi-role, mm -hmm. you know, the Tomcat was, I mean, they tried to at the end make it air to ground, but it was never really meant for that. You know, it was a pure air to air fighter. Uh, the a six, my favorite, the intruder. I mean, it was a bomb truck. I mean, those things in Vietnam could do things that were amazing. And the Hornet was, was that combination, you know, and, and in some aspects that's great. I mean, you know, it's designed as an aircraft that you could take off, hit the tanker, fight your way into an air war, drop bombs, fight your way out, hit the tanker and land on the ship. I mean, all in one plane. Um, but because of that, you know, it's kind of that jack of all trades, master yes. of none. Yeah. So, you know, while it could do it all and the Super Hornet went on to even add a tanking role that we use, which is putting hours on our Super Hornets at a ridiculously alarmingly fast rate for no reason. Um, you know, there were other platforms out there that that if the Navy had managed it differently, might be able to do them better. You know, the S3 was a fantastic, even if you just made that a tanker, was a fantastic tanker aircraft, yeah. you know, <laughs> ship compared to a Super Hornet, you know, things like that. So, you know, kind of its biggest strengths were also its weaknesses and the fact that we tried to jam so much. You know, I remember my first training flight off of the ship in workups after I had gone through all of the Hornet training, got out to my fleet squadron in Lemoore, Okay, we're going to go out for a month on this on the Nimitz at the time. It was my old ship. And I remember the first flight that was not carrier quals. They're like, okay, so what you're going to do is you're going to take off, you're going to hit the tanker, then we're going to join up, we're going to do simulated air to air, we're going to simulate drop a bomb on this point, we're going to simulate air to air on the way back, hit the tanker, come back and do a night trap. And I'm like, what? Dude, you just <laughs> summed up like eight months of training <laughs> that I just yeah. did in one flight. Like, and it was, I mean, I, wow. it was, those, that flight was, two and a half hours long and it felt like four minutes. I mean, it felt like you were just doing something constantly. Yeah. You know, again, it's just, it's great, but there's definitely some weakness to that as well, so. I'm gonna get on to our favorite point in, uh, uh, for our viewers uh, on the channel, DACT. How did the F-18 fare against, you know, the F-15s, 16s, or whatever you fought in, in your time? It you know, it was funny, and, I, and I've done a lot of different stuff. You know, even I even consider flying against a Super Hornet kind of, you know, that yes. same thing because it is. It's a it's a very different aircraft. 
Um, the Hornet actually, you know, it obviously has its weakness or its, its strengths in that and the fact that, you know, it could fly really slow. I mean, that was our game, right? It's, if it, I get my plane, like oh my, it was ridiculous. It yeah. was ridiculous how slow you can get that thing. And if you were fighting another Hornet and you got in kind of that slow speed fight, I mean, it it blew my mind how slow you can fly a fighter jet and have it controlled. And and one of the things that really stuck with me, um, and it, and it applies today, even in my civilian job of flying in the Airbus, um, fly by wire. I, I didn't really have an appreciation for that fly by wire. I mean, the, the E2, if you pulled floorboards, you'd see the cables, you know, I mean, it was a very conventional <laughs> yeah, yeah. cable and hydraulic aircraft. And the Hornet was not. And I remember vividly one time I was in a, in a high alpha fight and I was slightly defensive, shocking. And I looked over <laughs> and I'm like, I want to go over there. Right. So in my stupid pilot brain, I'm like, well, aileron makes me turn. Right. And I happen to have my mirror set up and I jammed the aileron over to get over there. The ailerons never moved, but the rudder kicked over because the plane uh, knew. Yeah. If it knew. gave the ailerons, I would have spun. But if it just kicked the rudders, wow. it could slime me over. And that was the biggest appreciation of like, I'm really just a voting member in this <laughs> in this plane. But once you learn that, you could exploit weaknesses of other aircraft so quickly because, you know, Mover will tell you, you know, the F-16 is the best because it could just sit there at 9 Gs and whatever. And, and I would let him sit at 9 Gs because I know the pilot's going to wear out quick. So he could go nuts on that. Um, I flew against the F-15s. Uh, fantastic but they're just such a big aircraft that it just takes a while you know and, and some people i've talked to kind of equated it to how the tomcat used to fight and that it's just this right. big plane that just it takes time i mean no matter what um obviously they have tons tons of thrust um but in that time that they're trying to use all that thrust to turn i can get my nose around and and, and yeah. take care of them so um i did a little bit with the f-22 and that was humbling <laughs> not fair. I can imagine. There's, it's just, it's just not fair. I, I, I did. I think it was two, two merges with an F-22, and it was. I mean, it was laughable. I'm like, okay, this is not what, like what we're not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not I, like a gunfight, and you brought a bow and arrow. Like, it's like, dude, yeah. come on. Like, this isn't, you know. <laughs> um, so it was cool, but until you really understood the role and what you can exploit, um, you know, I thought the Hornet fared fairly well. Obviously, I've never done air-to-air -air combat uh, in true combat. So how it would have equated, you know, with with weapon loadouts and things like that. I mean, in reality, you're going to jettison all that the minute you're actually fighting for your life. Of course, yeah. Um, but I really do think, you know, just by the fly-by-wire and the flight control systems, that it was a pretty impressive plane for what it was in, in the air-to-air -air, uh, arena. Now, obviously, the later models and the Super Hornets with their radars – and helmets and aim nine x and i mean my god you're yeah it's crazy isn't it forget it i mean it's it's insane but um you know but the little charlie she still did pretty darn good for and she's still going strong with the, the swiss uh the fins yep. and yeah i love it i love seeing it on social media i love i i cannot see enough pictures of legacy charlies because they're all gone out of the navy and it, it breaks my heart so yeah, um, I'm actually going to Riyadh in July, and I think there's a Spanish uh, Charlie flying, and I think uh, the Swiss Hornet's flying as well. So I'm going to take uh, lots of pictures. Oh, well, do. I'll send you them on back. <laughs> but uh, before we wrap up this part, did you ever get to do a fly, uh, an afterburner fly past uh, over the carrier in there in the Hornet? I did. So um, I've done my fair share of flybys of, of different Navy ships and of the carrier, and 
the Hornet's a blast. Again, it's easier to fly. Um, people love it. You know, Super Hornet was the same way. Everybody comes up on the flight deck to see it. Um, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble really quickly because <laughs> uh, unlike the E2, at least the variant I flew, there was no reporting systems. I have plenty of friends who uh, who got extra duty because oh, you know, really? the CAG is like, you will not go below this altitude. They do a flyby, they pull the tapes, and it's like right there in the HUD. Yeah. You know, below it. So I think that actually kind of took some of the fun out of it because you couldn't push it as much. Now, on some of the smaller ships, they just wanted to show. But, I mean, the carrier you had to watch because you knew the skipper of the ship was a pilot. The CAG was a pilot. They're always watching, and, and you know, they're trying to keep everybody safe. And, so you have to be and the leadership yourself. had changed so much. You know, I was in a different air wing with different leaders. That fighter pilot's fighter pilot mentality that I told you was gone from my second time. So yeah. it was definitely a different different time. But I did get my fair share and, and had my fun, and uh, and it's – it's worth it, <laughs> for sure. Definitely, definitely. So how would you sum up your time on the Hornet? I think I got to do everything I wanted to do. Um, it was an absolute blast. It was a privilege uh, that I was able to do it, especially coming from the E2. Um, I wouldn't have changed a thing. I wouldn't have gone Super Hornets. I wouldn't have done any of that. I'm happy that I can say that I flew the Legacy. One day, a Super Hornet will have some cool nickname like that, too. I'm sure, but... Um, I was happy to, you know, that, that lineage and the history of the people that have flown the Charlie goes back a while and it's done some really cool things. So I'm, I'm proud that I got to do that for sure. But, uh, you also an author one, but a uh, treason flight. Can you tell us about this and how this book came about? Yeah. So, um, much like everything else in my career, I kind of fell into this accidentally, um, I, I got this idea in 2017 that I was going to write an autobiography because um, if you haven't picked up on it, I'm a pilot and that means I'm the coolest person I know. Uh, and <laughs> so I was going to write this autobiography and tell my story to the world. Uh, I wrote one chapter um, and to her defense, my wife, I told her that idea and she's like, you're not that cool. Like, you're, <laughs> Yeah, of course. You, you need to bring you, you down a peg. Yeah, you don't. Mate, are you sure you want to do that? That was her Get response. The I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, you don't know. Try, once you read it, you'll be like, wow. I wrote one chapter and I threw it out. I'm like, this is dumb. That's not what I wanted to do. So um, one of the things, so a lot of people, you know, hey, what movies did you grow up with? And people uh, in my time frame are always like the original Top Gun, which I'm not saying I didn't watch it and haven't watched it hundreds of times and can quote it just like every, everybody else that loves aviation. But one of the movies that I really enjoyed was Flight of the Intruder. Yes. Um, that was something that just, it was, it, it spoke to me differently. And I did some research a long time ago about Stephen Koontz and who he was and, and how he wrote that book. And essentially, to summarize it, what he did, he was an A6 pilot in Vietnam in the Navy. And he heard all these stories and some things happened to him and, and all that. Um, and what he did is he took all these stories and he put it on one fictional character and uh, and that was Flight of the Intruder. So I'm yes. like, well, I've seen some stories. So I, the first thing I did is I did a search of fictional books about the E2 and you will find one and that's it. So nobody has ever written a fictional story about the E2. So I knew that I had kind of a, a niche there where I didn't you know, have a lot of competition in that field, which mm -hmm. is good. 
Um, and I kind of took his premise and, and paid a little bit of homage to that idea. So I yes. took and I, I created Rattler and took all these stories and some things like the prologue that actually happened to me. Uh, took a piece of advice that my father always gave me, which was never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yes. Sprinkled a little <laughs> bit of that on there. Um, and Treason Flight came out of it. And, and you basically have a story about a, an E2 pilot on a combat deployment that's dealing with awesome. all of the stuff that every pilot, frankly, any military pilot deals with, but, um, but definitely any Navy pilot on the ship. Um, but then there's a twist to it. And, and that's kind of the interesting thing. So when it first came out, you know, or when it was about to come out, I would tell people that my goals were to make the E2 sexy, which I think I did clearly because they put it in the Top Gun movie. That was obviously from the book. Um, and I wanted it to be a story you'd never heard before, because to me, you know, in aviation, especially fiction aviation, there's a lot of repeats of the same story where, you know, if you read a lot of it, you can almost go, well, that idea came from this book and that Mm -hmm. idea came from this book. And I, and I didn't want any of that. I wanted this to be a story that you've never heard before. Um, and it starts out that way with, it's a book actually about leadership is what it is. It's not with a, with an aviation twist to it. So that's that's basically where it came from and can we find where, where can we find it have you got your own website is it on so amazon I, so i do it's it's i so when i did this i was like i was originally just going to do an ebook yes. right and i'm like how hard's that i've written papers before i have files of papers i'll just write an ebook and then somebody or my somebody was like where well, are you gonna have it in a hard cut co- or like a paperback mm-hmm. and i was like sure and then my dad's like well i need a hard copy version and i was like oh <laughs> and then, you know, so I got all those figured out. And then yeah. my wife is like, where are you going to do an audiobook?" And I'm like, oh, I'm God. Fine, no. like, so now I got that done. You know, and I did not read the audiobook. I went to a professional for that. But um, uh, but it's available in all of those formats. I do have a website. It's it's trmatson.com. It's about the easiest thing. You can Google. I just realized TR Matson, and I am like the first 12 hits <laughs> on Google, So go. uh, which is crazy. It is on Amazon in every uh, every different possible format you could want it in, um, and all that. So it's it's kind of somewhat taken off a little bit, which is exciting and brilliant. And we'll see. So yeah, so I'll link everything in the description below for you guys uh, if you want to uh, get the book or follow uh, Wombat. But I've got a couple of personal questions if you're happy sure. with this. Oh, yeah. So here we go. Do you have any hobbies apart from aviation? I am a huge car guy and I really like working out. Those are my two things that I spend. If I'm not obviously working my day job, um, I would say my time is family number one. And then I try to work out every day. I've built a gym in my garage, which people on social media have seen and some really like, uh, and then I am a, I'm a, I'm a huge car guy. My dad was an auto mechanic. Uh, so I grew up around cars. Uh, I know a lot of people that follow me know about the Shelby that I have. Um, and I just added a new car to the to the stable as well that I haven't really said anything about yet. But it is, I'm a car guy. I just can't get it. My wife says I have a problem and I don't disagree with her on that one. So <laughs> It's a good problem. It is a good problem. So it's a fun problem. But obviously you mentioned before I move on to the next question, obviously like social media, I follow you on Instagram. Can you let our followers, uh, our viewers know like your handle so they can sure. you so know, see I, your gym? I think- Every yeah. So everything I'll become famous for my gym, which will be funny when yes. that's not what I'm trying. But whatever. Hey, I'll take it wherever I get it. Um, I think everything I've got, you know, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook is all TR Matson author. I tried to keep it simple, um, just because I know people have you know weird underscore things like that, and I just so TR Matson author should get you everywhere on every platform that at least I 
know about and try to try to put out there as much stuff as possible. <laughs> but, yeah. Brilliant. Favorite aircraft you have flown? You ready for this one? Go on. The E2. Okay. I knew I, I knew it was going to be the E2, but I thought like I'm going to get I'm going to get a lot of crap for that from yeah. people with the Hornet. Um, the Hornet was a blast, but the E2 was my first love and um, there's just something about it. You, there's just so many memories and, and all that. It was just, it's an amazing piece of machinery that doesn't get any love, so. Absolutely, yeah, I need some love. Uh, one you would love to fly past or present? So if we go way back, things like a, a Corsair or something would be fun to get a ride in or to fly, or a P-51 obviously would be fun. Um, I think the, the F-4 would have been a blast. Um, because to me, the F4 was, it's kind of the muscle car of jets, yeah. right? You know, they, their, their answer to everything was just tons of thrust. They're like, we don't need wings. We don't need anything. Just put a ton of thrust engine. behind it <laughs> and it'll be fine. And, and so there's definitely a kind of a correlation there with my love of muscle cars. Um, and then any pilot who has ever fired in a gun in a plane that doesn't tell you they'd want to fly the A-10 is either lying or a psychopath. Because if I could just go up once and fire that gun, because I know how cool it was in a 20 millimeter, I can only imagine uh, that. So those are my those are my top three. And I've got a couple of questions from people who put them to me personally, if you're happy to answer sure. one back. Uh, so this is from uh, Jim. Uh, is there any chance we can see a new book coming out in the future? So book number two is in the works. Uh, I would say it's about 50% done first draft. My goal is to get it the first draft done by the end of the summer and then get through the process to get it out. It should be quicker this time because I know the process. Um, but I know it's been a while. There's a couple reasons why. I mean, Treason Flight was uh, uh, May of 2021 uh, is when it came out. So... Purposely, book two was never going to get published before I completely retired from the Navy because uh, it's a little bit potentially more scandalous. And I wanted <laughs> to be off the Navy's books before it comes out. Um, and also, and, and I know other authors have said this, I've always felt this way when I write. Um, when somebody buys my book, any book, or even spends time on my social media site or anything, um, they're giving me in what I, what I think is the most precious commodity they own, which is their time. Yes. So I put a lot of effort um, to try to make this the most professional product for the person who buys it. Not because they're spending their money on it, because that is important too. Um, but if you're going to sit down and listen to the audiobook or read the book, you know that's your time that you could be doing something else. And I don't want to disappoint. So yes. I'd rather not be the author that's like, hey, here's my 50 books that I have out. I'd rather be the one that gives you something really amazing, but it takes a little bit longer. So yeah, that's, that's kind of my my take on it but it is going to happen uh the story is is all outlined and about 50 percent of it's down so so watch this space <laughs> so last question and it's probably the one everyone wants to know where did you get your call sign wombat from so that is a great question that i hear a lot um and it's funny i get it more from people in the uk and australia obviously uh people in the u.s don't care um i don't know why uh <laughs> what i will say is that the I could give some hints. Um, it is not what every Australian thinks it stands for, um, which is funny because every Australian, there's, I guess, whatever they have a term on what wombats do, and that is not where it came from. I can tell you that. <laughs> um, 
I did. My first port call ever in the Navy was to, to Perth, Australia. So I think that had something to do with it. Okay. Um, and it is actually an acronym. So every letter stands for something. Mm -hmm. But that's as far as I'm going to go. Right, so we'll leave that uh, to your imagination, folks. Yes. I'm going to have to yes. try and work it out. But yeah, Wombat, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Yeah, thank you very much. Cheers, Matt. All right, thanks.